Hi, this is Pastor John. Thanks for joining us today. Our passage for the morning was Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And oddly enough, upon a careful reading, we find out this passage is about our worship assembly. Now, we all know how valuable worship is to our daily lives and to the times when we come together. But the passage leads us to ask a question. When we come together, who are we worshiping? So take some heart examination to find out the true answer to that question. Meanwhile, let's see what our passage tells us. Online, we have movie night, Friday night, eight o'clock, uh, seven o'clock, bring a friend. I'd like you to turn to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter five. We're gonna be in verses one through seven. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hand? For when dreams increase, the words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. I was talking to a young pastor at a meeting several months ago, and uh, he said, so what kind of worship do you have? I said, well, we've got a team of dedicated people, and what, what, what kind of equipment do you have? I said, well, we've got a sound system and some guitars. He said, we've got a smoke machine. I went, oh. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the guy was sincere. He's new in the ministry. I, I get it. Uh, he said, so we've got a smoke machine, and we've got distortion, and, and i got an auto-tune. Now, for those of you who don't know what an auto-tune is, it's this thing that kind of distorts your voice, voice and makes you sound a little bit like you're underwater. He said, the congregation goes nuts when I use the auto-tune. I said, I'll bet they do. <laughs> yeah, you need to think about that. Because worship is becoming something a little bit different than what it has been traditionally. I'm not sure there's anything wrong with that, but we've got a lot of large auditoriums with dark lights and dark uh, uh, atmosphere and flashing lights and smoke machines and that sort of thing. And so the question for today is worship about God or about me? And I got to tell you something, it's something that I struggle with myself because sometimes I want it to be about me. I want, it, I want to have a pleasant experience. So well, we'll talk about that. So, you know, our time in Ecclesiastes has been pretty eye-opening so far. And just as a reminder, it's the story of Solomon, who started out well, but finished, well, not so well. Uh, but before he left, he imparted some wisdom to us about the things that he had learned during his life. The richest man in the world, wisest man in the world, he obviously learned some lessons. And now in this book, one of his descendants is trying to teach a generation of young, prosperous, well-to-do, up-and-coming leaders how to avoid the pitfalls that Solomon fell into. Now, what we found out is that being apart from God, as Solomon eventually got, being apart from God allows other things to move into your life and become priorities other than your relationship with your Father in heaven. And so his people uh, is part of all that, and they kind of begin to fall off the radar screen as well. And all of that exposes us to a rough time, a tough walk, exposes us to all sorts of spiritual dryness 
and so on and so forth. So we found out two weeks ago that the world can rob us of our joy. Uh, and I think we all know that to be true. Uh, and one of the ways he does this, is, last week we found out, is tell us that self comes first. Tell us that we are the highest priority. And everything else comes after that. That was a worldly lesson in what we call rugged individualism. So this week we're going to take a look at worship and how we should approach worship. And it, it goes right in line with everything that the teacher's been telling us. This is Catching the Wind, part six. So we're going to see a couple of guidelines on how to worship. And the first one is that we should be cautious in verses one through three. The second one is that we should be committed. And what should we be committed to would be the question, but that's in verses four through seven. So let's take a look at how we should be cautious. Verse one says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So this is a timely warning for this teacher in the fourth century Palestine uh, Malachi wrote about it sometime around the end of the 5th century uh, and he, it, it, he portrays God uh, as uh, God's people as folks who have begun to take worship for granted and by then they're offering up less than perfect sacrifices that kind of the drays kind of the seconds uh, they're half-hearted sacrifice you read about that in Malachi 1 people were also at that time, quick to make promises. And frequently they'd make a promise, and after realizing what they said, what they had committed to, they would renege. They were very quick to renege on the promises. So Proverbs chapter 20, verse 25, speaks of this and says, it is a snare to say rashly, it is holy. So we're talking about promises made to God, promises made in the assembly. It is a snare to act, say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making the vows. I need to think about that for a while. So what we're seeing in the first half of the first verse of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is that we should be cautious about what we say while we're in the house of God. As a matter of fact, it says to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So this is in regards to our worship assembly. We should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Now we hear a little bit more about this in the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, James is talking about relating to the people around us, uh, so how we get along with other people. But what we're, what we're seeing in this passage in Ecclesiastes is that it goes double for attending what we would call church today. We have, what we have in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is a set of guidelines for how to assemble as God's people, how we come together. And apparently, back then, this was necessary for that prosperous time, and I think it's just as vital a message today as it was back then. So when the teacher says, guard your steps, there's a whole bunch of baggage in there. What he's saying is, be careful. Be careful when you enter the sanctuary. Think. Think about what you are about to do. This is not a social hour. This is not a casual time. It is not to be taken for granted. It's not to become an obligation that I got to do on Sunday morning. You should gird yourself, you should be prepared. You're walking into, listen carefully, you're walking into the house of God. Oh, it's just a building. I know that. But there is something incredibly unique about the assembly of God's people. You're walking into the house of God. You're coming into his presence in a unique way. Yes, he's everywhere. I get it. 
But when God's people come together in a building like this or several other churches around town at the same time, there is something unique about that experience. It's more profound than when we are outside the church. I think you'd have to agree. We're reminded of Moses in the burning bush, aren't we? Exodus chapter, chapter 3. Moses standing in front of the bush. The bush is talking to him. You know, he really, he, he's a guy on the run. He, he had to escape Egypt. He took a stand for the Hebrew people. They turned against him. Pharaoh's running after him. So Moses out in the middle of nowhere, doesn't have anything, watching his father-in-law's sheep. And he sees a bush that's burning up and not being consumed. And he turns to the bush. I, I don't know what you think about this moment in Moses' life, but I, I, I like to reflect on it because the bush starts talking to him. Oh, it's Moses. Oh, <laughs> The bush is talking to him. I stood out inside of our house for hours waiting for a bush to say something to me. And it just isn't him. Not only is the bush talking about him, but it knows his name. And he finds out this is God. And what he says is, remove your sandals from your feet. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Now, we're not talking about sanctified dirt, brothers and sisters. We can't go over there and find out where Moses was standing and get some of that dirt and bring it back here and have it glow or something. The ground is holy because it is in proximity to God. What, what God is saying to Moses is, remove the sandals from your feet. You are in my presence. Prepare yourself. I've come here to tell you something. I've come out of heaven and entered into the world and into your life. And I want you to hear what I have to say. It's important. Is that Sunday morning? Would God say the same thing to us? See, that's, that's what our coming together should reflect. A reverence for God's holiness, his perfection, an appreciation for the grace he sheds upon us that brings us together at a moment like this. It's not to hear John. It's to hear from God. Now, that reverence, what we're seeing in this chapter, includes how we speak to each other. Maybe even how we speak at all, particularly in the assembly. We should be very careful not to worship like a fool, it says. Now, this has to be taken in the context of the day and what was going on there so that we understand what's going on. Remember what Malachi said about flawed and imperfect sacrifices and offerings People in that day, here's the problem. People in that day weren't offering their best. They, they weren't offering their best. They were giving God their discards, their remnant, what they couldn't use, the parts of their lives that had little or no value. They were not honoring God in a very real way. They were mocking him, Telling him, my needs and desires come first, and I'll give you what's left over after that. See, that's, that's at the core of this disrespect, the idea that God takes a back seat to my needs, to my desires. Once I'm happy, I'll turn to you, Father. Now, one of these desires was a desire to be heard, to speak up, to make their opinion known. It's pretty significant, isn't it? I mean, when you, when you stop and hear all this talk about the Old Testament has no relevance to me, don't we live in an age in which opinions are like gold? Uh, 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 opinions insist to be taken as truth, and everyone has one, and they're all different. Isn't that true? Why there's so much confusion out there. So just like in Malachi's day, just back then, there were a whole lot of folks who want to make sure that their opinion is heard, that it is registered. And this is certainly true outside the church today, but it's true inside the church as well. 
Our teacher says that we should come to church to hear, not to speak, to listen to God, to listen to his word, to listen to his prophets. What we saw this morning with the worship team, we're not people playing instruments. We were seeing people prophesy on behalf of God. Nice to know we're human, isn't it? This is heady. This is why God repeatedly says, at least six times in the scriptures, hear, O Israel. God's people come to listen to God, not to speak, but a lot of people would rather be heard than to listen. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody tell me, well, I really enjoy your teaching, but I've got to tell you something. I don't agree with all of it. The things I don't agree with, I just ignore. And uh, which is fine if I'm giving you my opinion, but if I'm reading scripture and you don't agree with something in scripture, we don't have the option to ignore that. I'm sorry, I've got an opinion on that. Oh, God's concerned about your opinion. Maybe he'll rewrite the Bible to accommodate it. Teacher calls this desire to bring attention to ourselves, the doing of evil. You know what would happen when the Jews would gather in the temple? They would be silent while the sacrifices were being offered. And that silence was a reverence before God, knowing that the sacrifices were necessary to reconcile their sins. It demonstrated that they were, that silence demonstrated that they were receptive to what God was doing and understood they were in his divine presence. Then the next thing that would happen was the priest would read from the scrolls. Everybody would be silent. Then he would explain everything that was read. Then the priest would pray. And then the congregation would respond. But the way they responded was to sing. What did they sing? They sang God's playlist, the Psalms. Now, when we hear about people singing in the scriptures, it's almost always that they're singing a psalm. And then finally, the priest would bless the people, and then they would leave. Today, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a sermon class and listened to somebody say that today we have to generate a dialogue. We have to have a discussion with the congregation. We need to be open to their input because people have different takes and different opinions on things. We need to encourage some give and take during the sermon. But our verse says this, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Then our teacher kind of ups the ante on all this. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. That should put some perspective to things. Therefore, because God's in heaven and you're down here, let your words be few. Now, the phrase before God usually refers to being there in the temple, being in the presence of God. That's what they heard when they heard before God. Today, we would say in church. And don't, don't get me wrong, it's entirely appropriate to pray in church, corporately and individually. It's not a prohibition. But here we see that we should be careful. We should be careful what we pray. Choosing our words, choosing our utterances, just as carefully as the way we walk through the door. And the focus, brothers and sisters, should be on him. The focus should be on him. If we're patient to listen, we should be hesitant to speak. God is in heaven. He already knows everything. We can't inform God of anything. We can't fill him in on the details. You know that. We can't give him the background so he'll make the right decision on things. We come together to learn, to be equipped, not to express ourselves and be heard. Now, again, it's not a prohibition to talk. It's not a prohibition to pray. It is a caution to be careful and thoughtful before we speak. A warning to 
to avoid making the service about us. It's to be about God. So not only should we be careful to speak, we should let our words be few when we do. Verse 3 says, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. This is a proverb, a bit of wisdom literature right in the middle of all this wisdom literature, street smarts. It tells us that our thoughts and our, our dreams, if we allow them to take center stage, we allow them to become the focus. If we come expecting to be heard, expecting to be the center of the worship service, we're as foolish as those people who are offering up inadequate sacrifices. You know, what we're seeing here is that our gatherings are serious business. They're, they're reverent. Our prayers are serious business. And they should be carefully offered. They should be offered up with reverence, with some humility, and focused on God, not us. We need to be cautious about this. Because it is so easy. It is so easy to let our worship become centered on my needs, my desires, my performance, my desire to be heard. And when we allow those things to happen, and we're not worshiping God, brothers and sisters, we're worshiping ourselves. Do you see? That's what happened to Solomon. It crept in. In his eyes, he became more important to himself than God was. And wound out empty and frustrated. Solomon was not cautious. We should be. The other thing that we should be is committed. Verse 4. That's our second guideline. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Now, again, we got the thing with the fools. He keeps on going back to what he was talking about, the ones who offer tainted, worthless sacrifices, the one who thinks that the reason everybody comes together is about them and that they're the most important person in the room. They want to be heard, and they think everyone wants to hear them. They talk a lot, but they say very little. What we're hearing here is that they should be careful with their vows. And in this context, a vow is a promise that we make to God. I mean, we have all sorts of vows that we do, right? Uh, I like to tell people when we get married, when they get married, that when we have that service, when we have that ceremony of union, that they're making vows, uh, and it's really not vows to each other. It's really not vows to me. I've had people come, oh, could you come and do our wedding? We need a, we need a holy person to do the wedding. I, I think we need to talk about this because the vows that we make and who presides over the service is our Father in heaven. We make the vows to him. And we may not be totally serious about him all the time, but he is. So he takes us seriously when we make a vow, and he expects us to be just as faithful and true as he is. So verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 5 is straight out of uh, Deuteronomy 22, 23. Uh, verse 21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So in, in all reality, it's easy to make a vow and fail to carry it through once you realize the implications of what you've just done. I had, Kelly and I went to Cincinnati uh, in 2006, I think it was, five, six. We were starting a business. The guy was starting a business. We had the building picked out. Uh, we were going to sell boats and boat accessories. And he said, I want a big cross on the top of the building. And I want it lit up all day long. Find out what, what it is going to take. So I went looking, and I came back. I said, it's going to be $4,000. going to be $4,000 to put that cross up. We, we, we really don't have any money. He said, well, we're going to do it. 
If God, let's pray, and if God sends $4,000, I'll put the cross up. I said, okay, let's pray. So we prayed, and the next day, some guy showed up to look at our business plan, and he said, I'll help out. Can you use $4,000? The cross never went up. And that was when I knew we were in trouble. Not that I was holier than he was. I even understood why he decided not to spend the $4,000. We had all these other pending needs. But I'm sitting there going, we made a promise to God. This is not good. This is what we're talking about here. You be careful what you vow. God didn't ask him to ask for $4,000. He just made the vow. When God fulfilled it, things began to change. And here's, here's what our teacher in Ecclesiastes says about that. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. It's better to just keep your mouth shut. Better not to do it. It's better to do that than, than to make a promise you're not willing or you can't keep. Or even to misrepresent yourself before God. See, that's what Ananias and Sapphira did in Acts chapter 5. Everybody was selling everything they had, bringing it into, into the storehouse, bringing it to the assembly. Um, they sold some land, and they bring their offering to the assembly, except when they get there in front of Peter, they lie about how much they sold it for. And Peter looks at him, and he says, why are you doing this? Oh, why are we doing what? You know, you're not lying to me. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. That didn't turn out well. Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? See, they, they could have said, well, we sold it, but we're bringing a portion. We're not bringing it all. I believe that would have been fine before the Lord, except they wanted to look good. They wanted to look holy. They wanted to be the center of attention. Ecclesiastes says, don't do that. You're only hurting yourself. Verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Back, back in the teacher's day, folks would make a vow to contribute to the temple treasury. Here's the context for that. And very much like the type of pledges we make at fundraisers that we see uh, for large projects like the one we're doing. And if someone didn't pay, either a priest or a messenger that he would designate would go by for a visit and remind them of their obligation. Sometimes people would claim they made a mistake. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Or maybe they had an excuse as to why they couldn't pay. Well, our situation has changed. Or perhaps they would say that they just aren't going to do it anymore. Maybe we'll just leave this group. In the first century... We need to understand this. In the first century, that was an incredible disgrace. In that, in that Eastern context, it was shameful. And it would bring incredible shame on the man and on his family. And, and it was so shameful, so devastating, that most folks would literally rather that they or their loved ones be put to death than to renege on a vow. Now, that doesn't register very well with us. And it says a lot about how seriously we take these vows. Now, if you're aware of this, it makes it a lot easier to read some very difficult passages in the Bible. Like Judges 11 where Jephthah makes this vow that he's going to sacrifice whatever comes through his door first. And what comes through his door first is his daughter. And he sacrifices her. And we go, why didn't he just say, I'm not going to do it? Because they took their vows that seriously. So seriously that his daughter says, well, you made the vow. I guess you're going to have to do what you told the God you would do. She goes along with it. You know, if we don't understand the Eastern mindset, we don't get this stuff. 
Furthermore, lying to God has earthly consequences. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, the idea here is that God punishes those who lie to him. There are consequences for lying, uh, particularly if you do it for your own gain. Now, we've got to be really careful with this because I, I hear this. Oh, you, you have to tell the truth all the time. No. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> John, are you telling us a lie? I'm just telling you that the idea that we have to tell the truth all the time, even if it's harmful to somebody, even if it causes emotional or spiritual or physical damage to them, that isn't upheld by Scripture. If you read your Scriptures carefully, and you read about Rahab, Joshua chapter 6, the guards show up and go, have you seen those spies? I can't tell a lie. They're over there under the corn. Go chop their heads off. God blesses Rahab. David lies when he's running from Saul. You take a look at 1 Samuel 21, uh, where he goes to visit Ahimelech, and he lies to Ahimelech about what he's doing there. Well, the king sent me. The Egyptian midwives in in, uh, Exodus chapter 1, they lie to Pharaoh. And God increases their family because of it. So we've got to be really careful that we don't get too legalistic about these things. And the point in Ecclesiastes 5 is this. A lie that comes out of your mouth that is told to justify breaking a vow, breaking a promise, breaking a pledge is subject to God's chastisement. Now, it doesn't doom us as Christians. Our final destiny is sealed. But it makes our, our walk here a bit more difficult. And in verse 7, he says, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. Again, this needs to be taken in the context of the paragraph that it's in. We have another proverb. Uh, This one is based on how we gather, how we worship. The claim is that many dreams are vanities. They have no value. My thoughts during all this really shouldn't impact the way the service is going. Likewise, many words spoken in the assembly in self-defense or in being self-focused have no value. In other words, our assemblies, our church services, brothers and sisters are about God. They're not about us. Ultimately, he says, God is the one you must fear. And this is not the knee-knocking, quaking, trembling fear that called to be afraid of God. This refers to the reverential awe that we should have for the Father. What the teacher is saying to this land under the sun, this land apart from God, land that gives God second shift, is to revere God, not, not to revere men and their words, and certainly not yourself. And the call is to be committed to an unchanging, truthful, prophetic, accurate, and trustworthy word of God in particular in our worship, and not to violate it by showing others that your own words are none of those things. So we have the guidelines, how we worship. Be cautious. Our our worship should be focused on, uh, characterized by a focus on God, not us. A reverence for him, uh, not a, a priority to meet our desires, nor our expectations of him and what the church should provide for us. This is, this is a tough pill to swallow for the consumerist age that we're in. Because we're constantly being told that the things we're involved in should fulfill us, should satisfy us. We want to go somewhere else where we feel like we fit. I don't fit there. I'm uncomfortable. We want to go somewhere where they play our style of music, don't we? We want to go somewhere where we like that style of teaching that appeals to me. We want to have our ears tickled. We love that. We, we, we like the, the place that teaches our type of lesson, something that is relevant to me. 
And we see this emphasis in, in a lot of churches today. Not all of them. There are a lot of churches like us. But we don't have these problems here, but we need to be aware of them, right? We see this emphasis in churches all around us where the emphasis is all on you. I've told you before, if you want to figure out when a teaching is weak or false, just ask, just ask who's being elevated. Just ask, who's the center of this? And if it's anything other than God, you need to just look the other way. So we, we put this emphasis on what we get out of our relationship with God and what he will do for you and what his church will do to serve you and make you feel better. How, how, how his church and, and how the gatherings make you feel. If it makes you feel good about yourself, well, this must be my home. I like this. And somebody tell me a couple years ago, I don't like to be challenged. I'm going to go somewhere else. I said, you know what? I think you're making the right decision if you don't like to be challenged. Because I'm challenged by these things that I read. Very few people are willing to examine their hearts and ask the hard question, am I here because it's all about me or am I here because I want to know about God? If it's about God, we need to be careful. We need to be careful how we enter. We need to be careful how our posture is. We need to be careful how we walk in the church uh, about what we say and how we say it. We are in the presence of the Lord of the universe. He's our creator. He's the one who touched, he reached deep down inside us and formed our unformed substance. He brought us into being. He touched our hearts and made them new. He made us one with himself forever by sacrificing his only son to redeem us from our sins. Well, if it's all about me, I can be pretty casual about that. I can make demands. I can call God my pal. I go jump into his arms because he's going to make me happy. I don't have to worry about my prayers and what I say. He loves me. It's true. He does. But we're not called just to love him. We're called to revere him. If all that's true, if he loves me and I don't have to worry about this, I certainly don't have to worry about being committed. Keeping your vow, keeping your word, that was a vital element. You heard the vital element of Jewish faith. Why, is that, why, why was that so vital? Because they believed they were God's ambassadors. They believed they were tasked with being a blessing to all the nations of the earth. They believed that when they spoke, they represented God. <laughs> And to speak lies, to break vows, is to portray a God that does the same thing. And these people in, in Ecclesiastes' time had fallen away from God. They had forgotten their charge. They were not living for him, but for themselves. So naturally, the worship that they practiced followed right along with their hearts. So is worship about God or me? We know the answer to this, but it's so easy to make it about us. So easy to make it about our experience. How many times have you walked out saying, I didn't care for church today. I've done it. Walked out going, I haven't had a good experience. It's not my style of music. Or how about this one? I wish the sermon was more relevant to me. You see, you see how the focus on ourselves can creep in? Jesus didn't die so that we can enjoy our music. He didn't die so that we could have our playlist. He didn't give up his spirit so that our desires about church could be satisfied. He died for the glory of God. He died for the glory of God and to worship him. And church is about God, not us. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, 
We're not about to have a private moment with our Father in heaven. Communion, brothers and sisters, is not about me or you. It's about our Father. It's about God coming down to earth, walking among us, loving us, drawing us to the Father, and then sacrificing himself on the cross so that we could have this reverent moment together. This is precious. Made less so if we think that God did it all for me. Now, the beauty of that, if we understand it's about God, if we get that, if we get the focus on God, it becomes about us. It becomes about us being together. It becomes about us having an eternal home. It becomes about us having a loving relationship with our Father. But it has to start with the Father first. God's not here to meet my needs. We're here to give him glory. Amen. So we're going to pass out these elements. What do you think about what you just heard? This is not a chastisement to Warrington Bible Fellowship. This is just a commentary on our times. Then we're going to take the bread together. Then we'll take the juice together. And then we'll pray. Mm-hmm. Father, we give you thanks. Lord, we sit here together and just heard your word about the centerpiece of everything we do is you. And now you put in our hands a little crust of bread. It would be so easy to dismiss it. But Father, as we hold this and understand that this little piece of bread means that 4,000 years of prophecy and promises were fulfilled in that little room in Jerusalem on that dark night. That not only was the prophecy fulfilled, not only was every promise kept, but it was given as a deposit. We hold in our hands a deposit on every promise that is coming to us as your people. Father, every, every vow that you've made to us Uh, is held to be true because of this crust of bread and what it represents, the sacrifice that your son made on the cross so that we could be here today. 
So we thank you that you've given us this remembrance, but also given us the opportunity to participate in that sacrifice, Father, as we become one people, as we join our hearts to those who have gone before us and those who will come after and understand that one day we will stand before you in glory, giving perfect sacrifice and praise and worship to you. So we thank you for that bread when he said, for that moment when he said, this is my body, take and eat. Again, Lord, you hand us a little cup of juice. And but for what you have taught us, Father, it would just be that, a little cup of juice. But your word instructs us as to what it means. Along with the crust of bread that represented the fulfillment of 4,000 years of prophecy and promise. Your son holds up the cup and said, he said, this is my blood. Oh, Lord, the blood seals the deal. The blood cleanses. So what was sacrificed, the blood that was presented on the altar for for 2,000 years, Father, was only a temporary remission of sin. Jesus' blood is not just permanent, it's eternal. And so we look back on that moment where he said, it's about the blood, it's not about the the ritual. It's about the blood, the blood will cleanse you. Uh, The body brings you into God's presence, the blood cleanses you. And it points toward, this cup points towards the day when we will stand before you clothed in righteousness, a righteousness that is perfect because it is your son's righteousness who was perfect and holy. We thank you for the blood that reminds us of the sacrifice, but we also thank you for the blood that reminds us of the promise. Your son will return and take us to the place he's prepared for us. Take and drink. Lord, we give you thanks. Give you thanks for who you are, Father. Give you thanks for the reminders of what the, our priorities in our lives should be. And we confess, Lord, that these are sometimes hard for us to walk out. And we pray uh, by the presence and power of your spirit uh, that as we focus on these things, that you would give us the strength to get better on it day by day until one day we stand in perfection. In the meantime, we thank you, Father, for the grace 
for the grace that restores us when we slip. We thank you for the repentance that is granted to us that brings us into the full measure of that grace. We thank you most of all for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, I'd like everybody to stand up. And for those of you that can, I'd like you to come forward. That would be most of you. Come forward. (laughs) And we're going to sing the doxology to the folks that are tuned in. We appreciate you for spending your time with us this morning online. Thank you. You don't have to squeeze in, just be here. (laughs) Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you. you. Do you know what you just experienced? Wasn't there something just a little bit special about coming down here and standing together? That's the assembly. God joins us in a very singular way when we do these things. And you have the opportunity to join with us as well. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. I'll be over here if anybody has any questions. Thank you. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.